Well, good evening. Where did everybody go? I thought <laughs> we were all engaged there. Man, that was good stuff, wasn't it? I really appreciate you guys leading us. That's good. Well, hey, it's great for me to be able to be here with you. Um, as Ryan said, I've, I've had the privilege of just connecting with he and Jay and being part of just helping with the oversight team. I, I am so excited with what God's doing through Awakening, through each of you. I, I think it will be a difference maker in the Bay Area. I think there's few things that will be more missional than a hundred churches just like this one planning across the Bay Area. And so we're, we're really praying. I have been praying for you guys daily uh, that God would just do something through this group. And so it's a real privilege for me to be here. You, you may hear, just tell you a little bit about myself, uh, you may hear a little bit of accent. I don't know. Anybody picking up on some? Yeah. I'm, no, it's it's pretty obvious. Uh, I'm not from the Bay Area. Grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, originally. And uh, my first job out of high school was at Elvis's house. I was a tour guide at Graceland. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I can tell you Elvis stories later uh, with that. And then uh, my wife and I, we married, lived in Memphis. We lived overseas in Bangkok for a while, Dallas. We were in Little Rock the last 10 years and then moved to the Bay Area about 18 months ago. And a little, little bit of a change but from Little Rock to uh, this area, but we, we really love it out here. We've got a big family. We've got seven kids, our five, and then two older ones that were nieces that we adopted as daughters. So, uh, Sunday night, our oldest will be home. We'll have all seven here. So it, it is a party time at the Lundy House all the time. As I was thinking about this this weekend and just praying for you guys, and, and just thinking about this church, what is it that God wants to do through us? And, and when I say the term missional, what does it mean to live our lives in a way that we're on mission with God all the time? I, I don't know what you think of when you think of missional. Uh, I grew up in a, a Bible church, strong teaching church. It's a very strong missionary church. A lot of times when I, I think of the term missional, it's put on a pith helmet, go to Africa, go in the dark jungles, or, or like we did. I mean, we, we lived for two years in Bangkok. And, and in it, you, you have wild experiences. In fact, probably the closest I ever came to dying was in Bangkok. Anybody here been to Bangkok, Southeast Asia? It's, it's, it's a great city. I loved living there. But it's got huge traffic issues, way too many people, 13, 14 million people, about 11 million cars everywhere, no major transportation system at that time. And, and when, when I first got there, I would see all these guys on the corner, and they'd have these uh, little silk vests on. And they looked like gangs. Every corner you saw these gangs. They had motorcycles and these silk vests. And finally, I asked somebody at the local, I said, what, what is up with those guys? They said, they're taxis. In fact, it's the best way to get around. Traffic's so bad, you just go up to one of these guys with their motorcycle, negotiate a fare, tell them where you're going, and you jump on the back and you go. And the first time you do it, you think, this is awesome. I'm finally getting somewhere. But, but the one thing they told you is you're taking your life in your hands every time you do it. And I kind of blew it off. till one day, uh, we were right on our little alley, the little soy right where we lived, close to it, and it was the same guy I rode with a lot. And, and we were stuck in traffic, and this alley, it was just really tight. There's shops all the way up, and you drive on the other side of the road, so we're stuck over here in this left lane. And, and I notice as I look ahead, there's no traffic coming toward us in the right lane. And the driver notices it too, so he pulls out into that lane, and we just start going. And, and I'm looking at all the cars stuck bumper to bumper, and I'm thinking to myself, suckers, <laughs> this is why I ride motorcycle taxis. And we're going along until I look up ahead at the intersection, and it's starting to clear up. And now coming toward us in our lane is a Mack truck, a literal Mack truck. And so, so we see it there, and, and the driver starts to go this way, but the cars have been sitting there so long, there's no room to get back in. And then he started to go back this way, and there was, a, there was about a two-foot drop, and you were literally into these shops that were right along this alley. And so I'm holding on prepared because we're going to have to bail out into one of these shops. And he gets right over to the edge of it. And somewhere between that side and going into the shop, he looked ahead. And he saw there was a clearing to get back in our lane. But to get there, we were going to have to go really, really fast. 
And I'll never forget that feeling because, you know, here I am prepared. We're slowing down. We're about to bail out. And then suddenly he guns it. <laughs> and we're on the back of this motorcycle, and he starts screaming through the gears. I mean, we, just, we were in second, then we were in third gear. And, and some, the shops are flying by. And we're going. I see the Mack truck coming. I see the intersection where we got to get back in. The truck's not slowing down. We're speeding up. And finally, I got so scared, I just started screaming. Literally, the top of my lungs. I'm just like, ah! And then what really freaked me out is he started screaming too. I mean, both of us were like, ah! And we're screaming. It's going by. And the truck's honking. And I see our gap closing. And we get right to the point that the truck is right there. And I have visions of me laying in my casket with, you know, Mac across my cheek. And it was like a scene out of a movie. I thought I could hit the truck and touch it almost. And at the last second, he turns back in and we go. And we pull over to the side of the road just for a minute. We're just both sitting there. And I'll, I'll admit, I had tears going at this point. And I started beating on his helmet. I was like, stupid, stupid. What were you thinking? He's like, sorry, sorry. And, and finally, we, we pull up into our little apartment there. And I take off the helmet and I hand it to him. And he smiles at me and he says, no charge. <laughs> I'm like, no charge. Took years off my life. I, I loved living in a city like that. I loved being in an environment like that. I, I loved living cross-culturally. I loved being an ambassador for the gospel. But, but, but when you think about missional living, it, it, here's the fear I have sometimes. We, we always think it's, it's in some environment like that. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to be missional with my life. But I've got to go to some other country, some other place. Guys, I want to tell you, if I were to just step back and strategically say, what could be the most missional thing you could do on this planet to reach the planet for the gospel? I would put maybe at the top of the list, if not at the top in my top three, planning a church in the Bay Area is one of the most strategic missional things that you could do on this planet to reach it for Jesus Christ. And you're a part of it. God stirred your heart to be a part of something strategic and missional. Now, the question is, you're a part of it, but how are you living it out? How do we do this in a way that we don't just join in a movement, but we're actually part of expanding that movement? You can see that the theme here is shine. How do we take this incredible power of the gospel that's been given to us, placed in us through the power of the Holy Spirit, and live it in a way that an area like the Bay Area couldn't help but see it. If you, if you look in your notes, there's, there's some foundational principles that just I build off of. Because sometimes when we talk about being missional, we start getting geared up, what do we have to do? If you look at the, the first note there is, God is moving missionally in the world. We just need to look how to join him. It's not something we have to generate. It's not something we have to come up with. It's not something that we've got to be a genius about. Folks, we serve a missional God who from eternity past, he came up with a plan how to reach the planet. We just need to look around and join with what he's doing. How do we do it? There's two fundamental ways that, that Christ called us to that first one, and, and we talk about this a lot, but again, it's just the Great Commission. The Great Commission. It calls us to make disciples by reaching them and teaching them. And you've got to have both sides of it. If you look at it, you can see it in your notes. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all the nations. How do you do it? First one, reach them. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism is that, that symbol that they've come to that final place of a relationship with Jesus Christ. They recognize it before the world. But, but don't leave off the second part. You've got to teach them as well. Teach them to obey everything that I commanded you, and I'll be with you even to the end of the age. We'll talk about this a little bit more tomorrow, but, but that great commission combined with the second part, if you're going to shine, is the great commandment. You can see the third part in your note, the great command that calls us to love God and love others. So just three fundamental principles. One, God's a missional God. He's going to do this. As so I fundamentally believe he's going to reach the Bay Area with or without us, but I'd like to join in with what he's doing. He's going to do it when believers take both those commands to heart. One that we really believe the Great Commission, that every part of my life I need to be reaching somebody for Christ and teaching them everything about Christ so that we can obey him.
And then the second command, you can't leave this one off as well. When there are believers who live in such a way that they love God and they love other people as themselves. Folks, we live that out, you can't help but reach this area. You can't can't help but shine. You, You can't help but be what Jesus said. It's like a city set on a hill. And he was talking back in a time period when they didn't have electric light. And so when you were out in Palestine and you came up on a city, you saw it for miles. If they had light there, he said, that's what my church is. But but how do we do that practically? And and I want to turn it to more of a personal level. How do you do it when you're not just at a retreat here? How do you do it day in, day out at your office, at your workplace, in your classroom, wherever you are, with your peers? And and, and to do that, I want us to go back to the Gospels with Jesus. We're going to look at probably the most famous passage Jesus ever taught. It's always a little risky when you teach a passage everybody knows in their sleep, but we're going to go there anyway. If you got your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And and Jesus is talking in this context of how how do you love people in this way? How, How do you live it out that you truly love others as yourself? Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. If you've got a Bible, you can look there. If you don't, you just look on with somebody else or listen. I'll, I'll read it. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. So look at the context of it here. It's a lawyer. In, in our day, if you were a lawyer, you, you study criminal law, constitutional law, civil law, your, your specialty. In that time period, if you were a lawyer, you studied Old Testament law, the Torah. And so, so this guy, he's a scholar of the law. He studies this all the time. And I won't make a lawyer joke here. We may have some lawyers in the room with it. But, I mean, as a lawyer, they like to argue about the law. They like to have opinions about it. And so here, he's standing up. Jesus, he's trying to kind of nail him down. He says, so, so what do you say? How do you inherit eternal life? And Jesus is so brilliant because notice what he does in this. Instead of answering it, he kind of turns it back on him. Well, what's your opinion? I mean, if you want to get a lawyer talking, ask them their legal opinion. And immediately the guy comes back, well, I mean, the law says you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, the great command. And notice what Jesus says in that moment. He says, do this and you'll live. And it's true, actually. If any person were ever to just live out that command as it's stated, you would have eternal life. The the reality is none of us can. Because we're fallen, we, we don't love other people that way. We don't love God that way. But, but Jesus just answered him and said, if you were to do that, you can. Now, he's the only person that did it. Remember, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. He actually lived out what it meant to love people like that and love God like that. And, and so he, he leaves him with it, and he said, yeah, do this and you'll live. Notice how he's turned the conversation. The guy started questioning him. Now Jesus has turned it around. He goes, hey, yeah, do what you said. You'll be great. You'll be fine. But then the guy has a question. Look at it. And desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, so who is my neighbor? See, it's an important question because if half of your whole equation for eternal life means you've got to love your neighbor as yourself, you probably need to know who this is. If you're trying to justify yourself, you, you better know who this person is. And if you look the questions behind the questions, you can see it in your notes. Really, he's looking, where's the line of obligation to know that I've done enough? Where's the line? It's the trouble with law. It's the trouble with being legalistic. Sometimes I'll counsel people. Sometimes counsel young people in their dating relationships or different times. And and they don't declare they're legalists, but they really are. Because here's where the question are. How far can I go before it's sin? Just, Just give me the line and I'll stay on this side of it. This guy's saying it the other way. He says, how far do I have to go to know that I've done enough? And really the core question behind it is, am I justified in the way that I'm living my life? Am I doing this right? 
And to answer it, I, I, I go back to the Gospels a lot as a teacher because I get really convicted. I, I think often we, we get real impressed with ourselves, so we try to come up with a bunch of principles. Have you noticed how many times Jesus answers with stories? And he uses these simple little stories, but they're so powerful, they live for, for literally thousands of years. And they still communicate this truth. He tells a story. Read with me. He said, okay, you ask who is my neighbor? Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, and they beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when you come back. It's a pow- powerful little story, one they would identify with. That, that stretch from Jerusalem to Jericho was known for robbers. People were assaulted there all the time. And he says, a, guy, a guy's going along, and he's jumped by robbers. He's left for dead in the ditch. And the first two guys that came along, first one was a priest, second one a Levite. These are the leaders of their church. These are the holy men. These are the, the, the good guys in their world. And, and notice what it says. It says, by chance. Now, do you think Jesus believed in chance? No, it, it was a, a divine appointment. They come along, but they see him. And, you know, if you were a Levite or a priest and you touched a dead body, there were a lot of purification rituals you had to go through. You, you couldn't go serve in the temple yet. You had to go wash. You had to clean. You had to go through this whole ritual. And so there's part of them. They look at it, and they see this guy. They don't know if he's alive or dead. And both of them make a conscious decision. We're going to walk on the other side of the street. And they go on with life. And then who comes along? Samaritan. You know any of the history of the Samaritans? Most hated people of the Jews. Samaria, even though they shared similar region right there, the Samaritans were a mix of Jewish people that had been left by the Assyrians, that had intermarried with other nations, they'd mixed some of the Old Testament with other religion. And so it, it was this group that the Jews literally, literally just despised. And Jesus makes him the hero of the story. The, the Samaritan comes along, and notice what he does. He goes, he gets the man, he takes care of him, puts him on his own animal, and takes him to the end. I mean, it's, it's a simple story, but if you walk through that, I think there's some key things that it calls us to, if we're really going to shine, if we're really going to love a neighbor like ourselves. Look at some of the things that it calls us to. Here's the first thing that you see in it. We're called to be intentional. We're called to be intentional. And when I say that, you look in that text when it said it just so happened. I, I think in all of those cases, God has divine appointments for each one of us. And the point when I say that is, God determines our encounters, but we determine our engagement. God aligns encounters for each one of us as followers of Jesus Christ. So, so this weekend, you're probably going to interact with somebody maybe in this room that it wasn't just a coincidence that you found yourself talking to that person. It wasn't just a coincidence that you saw that need. It wasn't just a coincidence that God brought that across your path. And so in each of those encounters, just like the priest and the Levite, you got to make a choice. Am I going to actually engage here? Or do I have another agenda? Do I have things to do? And I think I'll just go on the other side see god controls our encounters and i think he's bringing them along all the time i think sometimes when we live with blinders on so much we miss the bigger encounters because we refuse to engage 
as a pastor, I get real convicted about this. Uh, you work in a church, it is amazing. I, I really feel for the Levite and the, the, the priest. Because I think they probably had 10 meetings waiting for them at church. And so they got to hurry. we got to get going. I, I don't have time to stop and help a dead body over there. And, and then I read through Jesus' life. And, isn't it amazing? Jesus, who's on the most critical mission the planet's ever known, to go to the cross to die for our sins. I mean, wouldn't it have been enough if he just dropped down straight out of heaven and said, I don't have time for anybody else. I just need to go die on the cross. I'm, I'm on the most important mission this planet's ever seen. I mean, if you were on that kind of mission, you'd be given every excuse. And yet if you look at Jesus' life, it's filled with encounter after encounter where he stops and he ministers to people one-on-one. He preached to the crowds, and I think there's a place for that. But sometimes I think in church, we miss the most critical ministry because we are so busy doing the stuff of church that we missed encounters with people and opportunities to engage. See, if, if, if awakening is going to be a church that shines, it's not enough for Ryan, it's not enough for Jay. It, it's got to be a group of people that every person here gets it in a way that when people come across your path, they felt the love of Jesus Christ because you took enough time to actually engage them. What, what would it look like if this church, as it kept growing, that anybody that walked through the door, they may not agree with you on everything, that they may not like everything, but they undeniably would have to admit those people engaged me as a person, and they knew I was there. See, God calls us to be intentional like that. To do that, you see the second point, it, it takes a choice to cross over from the comfort and security of our world and engage their world. It, it takes a conscious choice. It won't just happen. It won't come easy. You won't want to do it when it actually comes along. When you have these opportunities, unfortunately, God doesn't look at our, our phones and our maps and our calendars and, and go, okay, yeah, that's a great spot for him. I'm going to bring somebody across right then. Tim's got a free hour next Tuesday. And so that's when I'll give him this great opportunity. Invariably, it comes on days you're slammed. Invariably, it comes when you don't feel like doing it. And, and it's in those moments you've got to decide, am I going to engage? But as you get stirred by God and you step out, you, got, you get to start seeing how he's working in the world. I, I've got some friends of mine, Chad and Ronnie Fellers, young couple. They're in their 30s. They've got a couple of kids, but they started feeling a passion. Ronnie, the wife especially, was feeling a passion for foster kids. We, we had a ministry that launched out of our church in Little Rock where we said, we want to get every kid in the foster system in the state of Arkansas out of foster care. And so we, we challenged every church. If every church would step forward, we can get every kid out. There is no reason a child should be in foster care with this many churches, this many followers of Jesus Christ. And Ronnie really took it to heart. She said, all right, we're opening our home. And, and so she, she started fostering baby Audrey, this beautiful baby girl. Chad was challenged. He, he wanted to be a part. He, he really felt challenged to go into the prison system. So we had a men's ministry. We do it over Venture Men's Fraternity. Part of my team's even here with it there. There we go. Shout out, a little love there. But we had a men's ministry, and, and so the prison system allowed us to, to go in and teach men's fraternity. So Chad was going in every week teaching men's fraternity to a group of guys that were in prison. One day, there was a hearing that came up for baby Audrey, a custody hearing. It was in court, and so Ronnie went to the hearing, and as she was there, the mother didn't show for the hearing. She was on drugs, didn't care for the baby. And then the dad steps forward, and he comes, and, and he had on prison guard. And, and the judge said, you know, son, do you want to take care of your daughter? And, and he said in that moment, he, he said, you know, I didn't even know I had a daughter when I went to prison. So obviously, I've not been the father I need to be. He said, but th there's a group of guys who come into the prison every week. They're teaching me this class called men's fraternity. And I've been learning in this class what I need to be as a man and what I need to be as a father. And so when I get out, I'm going to be paroled in three months. I'd like the opportunity to be the father that this little girl needs. 
you know, as, as the hearing ended, Ronnie went over to the young father. And she said, that group of guys coming in, have you met a guy named Chad? He said, yeah. Said, That's my husband. And so for the next three months, as Chad went into prison, he didn't teach the class anymore. He would just sit down with this father for the next three months and mentor him and train him and disciple him. And they continued the relationship beyond prison. Now, Chad and Ronnie didn't get to adopt the girl the way they thought they would. But God had a bigger agenda. Now, here's a question I have for you. You think that was a coincidence that that baby in that class? You think that just happened? No, no, see, God had a divine appointment. And the reason they got to be a part of it is instead of just feeling something inside, instead of just thinking, you know, we should do something about that, instead of just feeling sad for those poor foster kids, they stepped forward with their home. He stepped forward with his time. They actually did something about it. And they got to see God work through it. What about you? When's the last time you saw God work like that? Because guys, I think he's still doing that kind of stuff. I think he's doing it all around us. He, he'll bring the encounters. The question is, in those moments, will you engage? Or will you stay on the safe side of the street, on the safe agenda, on your schedule and your time? Because you've got things to do and people to see and places to go. See, Jesus says if you're going to love your neighbor, you've got to be intentional about it. Here's the second thing that jumps out at it. If you're going to love your neighbor, you've got to be merciful. I mean, this is a story about mercy. And, and as I say that, I, I want to be real careful because here's where God convicted me. I thought I was merciful. The more I study this, I don't think I am. I really don't. M mercy is, is more than a feeling. We, we live in a very kind-hearted country. It's one of the things I love about America. We, we, we'll mobilize real quickly. We feel for people. We're kind-hearted. We, we see a need. We'll give to it. And that is a good thing. Hear me. It's not a bad thing, but it's not biblical mercy. And I almost feel like we've got to protect biblical mercy because we can talk ourselves into thinking we're merciful because we're real sentimental or real big-hearted. See, the mercy that Jesus is talking about, the mercy he calls his church to, if you look at it, it goes beyond sentiment to compassion. He uses the word compassion in this. And so we, we think of ourselves in a real kind-hearted way, and that is very sentimental, but it moves beyond that. It moves to compassion. That word compassion, it, it, in the Greek, it's splanch nidsomai. I, I like that word splanch. Splanch in Greek literally means guts. Your splanch is your guts, your innards. And so this word splanch nidsomai literally means it's gut-wrenching. It just tears you up inside. Uh, and, and so when, when the Samaritan comes along, it says he literally has compassion for the man. He feels for this guy in a way that goes beyond uh, just, oh, that's sad, that poor man. wonder what happened to him. It's the same thing Jesus model. If you look in your notes, you can see it, Matthew 9. Several times when you read through Jesus' life, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, and you'll see this over and over, this same phrase, he had compassion on them. This splanch nitsomai. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out what? Send out feelers. We need more people that are just sad. And let's be sad for those people. Send out thinkers. We need more people thinking about the problem. Now, what, what does he say? Send out workers. I mean, he's got gut-wrenching emotion, and here's the answer to it. It's not just feeling sad for him. It's not just thinking about it. It's not sitting over here and kind of piously going, oh, that's really bad, this fallen world. No, he says, we need workers. We need people to do something about it. Here's the point. Mercy is compassion in action. If you want to know what biblical mercy is, it's compassion in action. 
It's, it's actually doing something about it. It's actually stepping out. It's actually giving my money. It's actually giving my time. It's actually engaging the world. It's compassion in action. Anything that stops short of that, it's, it's not mercy. Mercy does something. And it's so easy to lose sight of this. In fact, 1973 at Princeton Theological Seminary, they did a study. They had theological students. They gave them the passage, the Good Samaritan. They said, we want you to preach about the Good Samaritan. They had been studying the passage. They had been thinking about it. And they gathered the group together. They did this individual with them. They didn't know they were part of a study. They thought they were just going to teach it. And when they gathered them across campus, they said, quick, you've got to go across campus. You have to deliver this study in just a few minutes at a such and such building across campus, go, but you're running late. And as they went, they hired an actor to be on the path, a guy that his body's broken and he's laying there and he needs help just to see how they'd respond. 90% of these theologians, these pastors-to-be, stepped right over the guy in order to go deliver their message on the Good Samaritan. I mean, isn't that wild? Now, here's the deal. It's easy for me to laugh at them. But have you ever wondered, what, what, what are we walking past every day? You ever ask yourself, are you missing it? Do you really have a heart of mercy in action? Or is it a principle we like to think about and like to think we are? A few years ago, I, I had almost similar circumstance, just convicting in a lot of ways. I was going to church. I taught this class called Explore, and it was a real hard class because I would teach for about an hour. It was an apologetic class. I'd teach for an hour, and then the second hour of it, anybody in the class was allowed to ask any question they wanted about the Bible, about anything. So, I mean, I, I would have to be on my A game the whole time. It was an eight-week thing. We had about 200 people, all different faiths, different groups that were there. And so I'm getting geared up to go teach this class, go serve the Lord. And I'd always had the same routine. I went, I went to my favorite coffee shop. I'd go get a cup of coffee, an extra shot in it. Got to get some caffeine. We're going to go. Got to get my brain going. So I'd leave in my favorite coffee shop. I'm driving to go to the church for this class. And I get to the, the turn signal right there. And there's a Jeep, a guy in a Jeep. He had a five-year-old little girl with him. And I said, hey, you okay? And he said, oh, yeah, we're, we're just out of gas. We'll be fine. And, and honestly, my first thought was, oh, man, bummer for him, and started to turn. And, and as I went to turn, I mean, I'm driving just a little bit, and God, God starts going, really? Really? You, you're just you're going to leave him there, huh? And I'm like, but God, I'm going to serve you. <laughs> I mean, my class. And, and, and as I kept driving down the road, I was like, no, God, not now. And, and the first thing he brought back is, well, boy, you fit right in line with that priest and Levite, don't you? And so I pulled in, still with a bad, a bad attitude. I see a gas station. I pull into the gas station. It's kind of a shell station. had a Subway restaurant connected. And I walk into it, and I say, do you guys have a gas can? And they said, you know what? We don't. Somebody stole ours, and we sold the last temporary one. And, and my first thought was, I tried. All right, I tried, Jesus, you know, put that on the record. And as I started to walk out the door, the girl behind the subway counter said, I could empty out a pickle jar. It's like, excuse me? And she holds up this monster pickle jar. She said, there's only one more pickle. I could empty it out, and we could fill it with gas. And I'm sitting there going, no, Jesus, you don't want me to show up with a pickle jar of gasoline, do you? And I mean, before I could even say no, she had dumped it out. She's in there cleaning it out. And so, I, you know, I drive back and I pull up and the guy's, he's made it to the side of the road at this point and he's sitting there and, and I said, hey, I got some gas. He says, you do? And you should have seen his face when I hold up a pickle jar, you know, and he's kind of looking at me and he said, well, did, did you bring a funnel? And I went, oh, that probably would have been good if you bring a jar of gas. And so I, I get this piece of cardboard, and I'm holding the cardboard to get it in, and he's pouring, and gas is just going all over my arms. And he jumps in the Jeep. I mean, as soon as we get in, he jumps into the Jeep. And, I mean, before I have a chance to tell him about Jesus or all the other reasons God's brought him, me back here, 
He starts the Jeep and he goes, hey, dude, it's awesome. And he's gone. And I'm sitting there stenching of gas. I remember, I just said, really, God? You, you brought me back for this? I didn't get to share one thing with him. I remember, I said, God, nothing changed in his life. Here's what God convicted me of that moment. He said it wasn't about his life. It's about your life. That you like to teach this stuff. And, and you can stand up and you can define mercy in the Greek and all that. But is this really your heart? See, sometimes God provides these encounters not for what he's doing out there, for what he needs to do in here. And if we don't stop long enough to engage, we don't get transformed to look more like Jesus in the process. Third thing, third thing that jumps out in it is we've got to be sacrificial. It'll cost something. I, I wish I could say it's cheap, it's not costly, it'll come at a good time. never does. It, it, it will cost your time, your money, and your resources. It, it will cost your time, your money. This guy had to stop on his journey and spend the night with the guy. He, he was on a trip, remember? This wasn't home. But he stops takes a day out of his schedule. He, he leaves two denarii. A, a denarius was a day's wage. I don't know how much you make in a day. But take it and double it, and he pays for a stranger. It costs something. And, and, and it's always going to be that way. If you're going to be like Christ, if I'm going to be like Christ, it doesn't just come in the gaps. It doesn't just come in the good times. It doesn't just come when I had a little bit of money in my pocket and I didn't feel it. It comes when I feel it and I know it. And it's a sacrifice. You know, the second thing with that is it, it takes willingness more than qualification. It takes willingness more than qualification. Because sometimes I'll preach about this and I'll call people to it. And here's what the enemy wants to convince you. You're going to come across a need. You're going to come across a person. You're going to come across somebody to engage. And the first thing that the enemy is going to tell you is, well, wait, you better not get involved here. You're not qualified. There's somebody smarter to deal with this one. There's somebody that knows what they're doing. I keep waiting for that one person in church who actually knows what they're doing. <laughs> if they would please show up, I'd love to find them. And, and, and we talk ourselves out of it because, you know, I might do more damage than good. I better not engage here. Look at the story. The one guy who probably had no business stopping is the Samaritans. Remember, they hated Samaritans, and yet he still stopped. Remember, he's not home. He's on the road. He still stopped. He, he could have talked himself in a lot of ways into saying, I shouldn't be the guy to do it. But he stepped up and actually did something about it. Sometimes when I, when I preach or I'll talk about needs or people get stirred up about needs and I'll have them come down in church and, and here's what, we'll have this conversation a lot where, where somebody will come up and go, yeah, hey, do you know about sexual trafficking that's going on in the Bay Area? And I go, yes, yeah, it's awful. No, we need to do something about it. I'm like, you are absolutely right. The church needs to do something. The church needs to step forward. The church, when is the church going to tackle this? When is the church going to, when is the church? And I always look at them and go, you're the church, so what are we going to do? And they go, well, well no, I, I mean, I just, you know, I feel like I'm to call you to it. <laughs> and and, and I, I have a real quick indicator of the conversation I have with people. Here's what I always ask them. So are you here as a cheerleader or a leader? Because I don't need any more cheerleaders. I, I got a lot of cheerleaders who will point me in ten different directions. But if you're here to actually lead because God stirred your heart, and he wants you to be the forefront of what this church is going to do to meet that need, then, man, we will marshal our resources behind you. See, you'll never be qualified for what God calls you to do. That's when you know it's a God thing. The day you step forward and think you're qualified doing it, you probably have no business doing it. A God thing so much bigger than us that when he stirs you to it, and then when he actually does something through it, he has to get glory through it. 
here's the final thing that it points out for us. We've got to be purposeful. Because when we talk about this, and I preach on it, and we talk about meeting needs, sometimes you can feel so guilty about it, I've got to go out and do something. I've got to go help somebody. I'm going to go love on somebody whether they like it or not. I'm going to go give some money away or that. And we actually do more damage than good. Jesus is not teaching that. Here's what it means. We're called to enable, not empower. Or we're not called to enable, we're called to empower. And I've seen this a lot internationally uh, and going in third world countries. I've done a lot of work in Rwanda and different places and friends that are empowering people there. And, and so often we can kind of come in and we want to be the savior. We want to do everything that we actually enable things instead of empowering. And so one, one of the key things you've got to ask is God brings that engagement as he brings a person, as he brings it across your path. You've got to ask yourself, where is the line that actually can empower them to be who God's called them to be? without enabling them to stay stuck where they are. One of the ways you can ask yourself is, am I doing more work than they are? Am I doing the stuff that God's actually called them to do because I'm somehow trying to be their savior in it? A great line in that is Galatians teaches us we bear their burdens so that they can carry the load. If you're asking yourself, maybe you're in a situation right now. Because if you start reaching out in mercy, you'll find there's a lot of needs. And suddenly you, you get in these relationships. I've had people at time where I'm helping them. And, and you reach that point that you go, am I still helping them or am I enabling them? This feels like more work on my part than theirs. Here's what Galatians calls us to. If you ever find yourself in that place, it says, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Remember, the law of Christ is love love God, love others. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing to himself to somebody else for each one should carry their own load. If you look at those two words, carry each other's burdens, and then look at the last word, load. Two different words in the Greek. The word burden literally means it's like a crushing load. It's like if you come across somebody and they're crushed under a boulder that there is absolutely no way they're going to be able to pick that up. This is what the church is called to do. When we see people in that circumstance, we come and we say, I'm going to get you out from under this crushing burden. Sometimes it's a financial burden. Sometimes it may be an addiction. Sometimes it's just a life situation where he's called his church to carry those burdens. Now, notice, though, the last line. Your goal, though, is that I'm not to carry your burden and carry everything because the last line is so that each one can carry his own load. That word in the Greek literally means the amount of weight that a single person could carry themselves. See, as we come along and engage, and notice the Samaritan does this. Does he stay with this guy for weeks on end? Does he suddenly become his benefactor? I'm going to take care of him the rest of his life. No, he, he just steps in. He goes, you know what? This guy is in a desperate situation that he won't get out of on his own. To help him, it's going to take my time. It's going to take my money. It's going to take sacrifice. But, but I've got him out from under the burden, and now I'm going to leave him so that he can carry his own load. He, he can move forward in his life. See, th there's a part of it, because you can hear some of this, and you go, my life is already so busy. I've got so many people depending on me. I don't think I can add anything else. And we almost talk ourselves out of it before we even go out of the gate. God's not asking you to carry more than you carry. He's not going to bring across your path more than you can handle. But, but he is asking his church, and this is where we're different than charitable organizations. This is where we're different than just nice groups. This is where we're the church of Jesus Christ. He is asking us in a radical way as we come across people who are being crushed by life and crushed by circumstances and crushed by sinful choices and crushed by economic realities and crushed by spiritual realities. And he said, will my church stop and it may be a bigger burden than you can carry but a church together could and lift people up so that they have the opportunity to walk to carry their load follow christ jesus gets to the end of his story and he asks a question remember he was asked the question so who is my neighbor where is that line and he turns it at the end of the story and he says, so who proved to be the neighbor? Notice how he turned it? 
See, th- this is a guy who was looking for the line. This is the guy that go, who qualifies actually as my neighbor? Just show me which one and I'll do it. But Jesus said, no, you're looking out there. I'm actually looking in here. Who in the story proved to be a neighbor? And, and, and they can barely even say the word, the, the one who helped him. They don't want to say the Samaritan. Jesus says, go and do likewise. See, here, here's what Jesus' question points out. His focus is not on the person you must serve, but the person you are. His focus, Jesus isn't worried about out there. He, he knows what's going on in the world. But, but, but he is wondering, what, what's going on in here? Are, are you this kind of person? And, and the point of it is, is, it's not about the external obligation, but the internal transformation. See, God doesn't just bring these encounters along because he so desperately needs somebody to take care of the world. He can't handle it himself. He, he actually brings them along to not only help them, but to change you and me. But, but it requires stopping and looking and engaging at a level we're not comfortable with. You know, when, when we lived in Little Rock, our first house there, we, we had this little cul-de-sac. And, and my wife is really, she's so much better at this, this passage than I am. I wish she was here because then you'd have a better example of it. But, but she just made a point, we're, we're going to meet our neighbors. We're going to love our neighbors. And one neighbor was a, an older single fellow named Bud. Bud was in his 70s. And, and Bud has a severe stuttering problem. Uh, because of it, not many friends, no family in the area, lived alone. And, and when you engaged Bud, we, we had him down for dinner. I mean, to have a simple conversation with Bud, it's just very difficult because of his stuttering. He's a very bright man. In fact, the only time he wouldn't stutter is when he cussed. He'd get real frustrated with himself, and he'd start cussing under his breath. Then he realized he was cussing, and then, you know, he'd stop and go, it's okay, bud. And, and we would talk, and, and I mean, <coughs> bud told me right out of the gate, he said, you, you, you need to know I, I don't believe in God. I said, that's okay, bud. We'll just be neighbors. That, that was my line to him. And, and I kind of said it casually. Lee actually been it. And, and I got to tell you, I can't tell you how many times I would drive home at the end of the day and I'd pull into our cul-de-sac and I'd see her down in front of Bud's house out there talking to Bud. And I knew what that meant because to go talk to Bud, that, that was at least an hour just to have a conversation with him. But she was out there determined she was going to engage with Bud. And, and, and one day she, she came home, she says, Bud's got a doctor's appointment tomorrow. And uh, because of the procedure, he can't drive himself. You're going to take him. <laughs> I said, excuse me? Tomorrow? She said, yeah, tomorrow. He's a little embarrassed about it. You're, you're going to do it. You're going to take him tomorrow. I'll just I'll go ahead and be honest. I, I, I don't like saying this about myself. My first reaction was, I mean, it was a really busy time at church. The next day was my scheduled meeting days all, all day. And my first thought was, I am the pastor of a 7,000-member church. Surely there's somebody else that can drive Bud. But you don't say such thoughts to your wife. <laughs> I don't even like admitting it about myself. I mean, it came to me, and then as soon as I thought it, I thought, did you really just think that? When did you get so big? And so I called my AA, and I, just, I, I said, all right, cancel everything tomorrow. And she laughed. She goes, you're crazy. I said, no, just move them all the next day. And the next day I went and took Bud to the doctor and we talked a little bit on the way and then sat there for a few hours and then took him home. And, and before we left the doctor's office, the, the girl there said, so you're coming back tomorrow for the next part of your procedure. And B- Bud kind of looked at me and I was like, you got to be kidding because I had moved all the meetings to the next day. I said, yeah, we're, we're coming back tomorrow. And, and, and the next day we went and I'll never forget, we, we got home and we pulled into Bud's driveway, and he, he didn't say much the whole way home. And finally, he, he looked over at me and he said, you meant it, didn't you? In his stuttered voice. I said, but what? He said, when, when you said you wanted to be neighbors, 
you actually meant it, didn't you? I didn't believe you. But I think you really want to be my neighbor. And I had to be honest with him. I said, bud, I didn't mean it. <laughs> but my wife did. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm learning through it. I do want to be your neighbor. Bud still doesn't know Jesus. In, in fact, I, I would ask you, when you're praying, would you just every so often pray for Bud? He's getting up there. And I don't think he has long. But we still email. In fact, last week, here in San Jose, we opened up the door and there was a big package on the front door. Big ham from Arkansas. From Bud. <laughs> Bud's Christmas present to us. And, and Bud will listen to me, though. And we can talk. Because, by God's grace, I have a woman in my life who doesn't teach on this stuff. You won't get her up front much. But she really believes this. Jesus' last phrase, what, what did he say to us? He said, go and do. He, said, he didn't say go and think likewise. He didn't say go feel likewise. See, if you're going to be like him, you go and you do something about it. Let's pray. Father, I, I look out in a room like this and I can't help but get excited because I see life, I see energy, I see new tomorrows, I see new opportunities. I, I can't help but believe that you've called together this group to do something for your kingdom in a new way. But Lord, I, I pray that what we do in this room would not just stay contained in rooms like this or in worship services. Could, could we live this stuff in our daily lives? Could we love people the way you did? Could we be neighbors and friends? Could we be like Jesus and go do likewise? Lord, I, I confess, I lose sight of this so quickly with my agenda and my schedule. And I'm so thankful for the power of your words, Jesus, that through a simple story, you just cut me to the quick. You called me back again to what really matters. And so I, I pray over the course of the next couple of days, as we have time with you, as we interact with each other, as we pray and we dream, as we have divine encounters, could we engage with you as you call us to cross over? And could we engage with others as we see those opportunities to love like you loved? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.